Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In this week's episode, the Observer's Science and Technology Editor, Robin McKee, introduces Professor Sheila Rowan. In 2016, scientists detected the presence of gravitational waves 100 years after they were predicted to exist. Sheila explains what gravitational waves are, how they were detected, and the significance of this historic discovery. Thank you very much. For those of you who were expecting my colleague Ian Sample of The Guardian to be here as the website advertised, um, slight error, I apologise. Uh, I'm sorry I'm not Ian Sample, mainly because he's much younger than me, um, and most people are these days. Um, however, I'm very, very pleased to, to, to be involved in this. This uh, cements a very nice Glasgow University uh, duo here. I'm a graduate of uh, that great uh, ancient Scottish university, uh, along and you know, um, among many other great people who work there, James Watt, Kelvin, and of course, for all the aficionados, you will know Doctor Who got his doctorate at Glasgow University, um, hence his present Caledonian uh, version that you see nowadays. Um, so this brings a nice sort of round kind of finality to it, uh, as it were. Uh, I am going to stop talking. I am going to pass this over to Professor Sheila Rowan. She's going to talk about catching gravitational waves. I will come back and ask a couple of kind of daft questions and then pass it over to you guys to ask the really important questions. Um, so with no further ado, Sheila. Well, thank you very much, Robin, for the introduction. And it is an absolute honour to be here in the Royal Institution um, talking about gravitational waves. And as the title says, I'm going to talk about catching gravitational waves, how that's a new discovery, and what's coming in terms of a new astronomy. Um, so we're going to talk about gravitational waves. And so clearly, we're going to talk about gravitation. So I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction about why gravity is such an unusual, um, has an unusual place in our understanding of the universe. Because pretty much all the interactions that we understand, that we can, we can observe in the universe, almost all are covered by four forces, four fundamental forces. And they're up on this slide there. And two of those you're probably familiar with because we experience them in everyday life. There's gravity, gravitation, Again, and you have a pretty good feel for what gravity um, is and, and what gravity feels like because it's what holds us here on the Earth. We know if we pick up an object and let it go, it will fall, and it's gravity that's responsible for that. There are three other fundamental forces, the weak, the electromagnetic, and the strong. Now, the electromagnetic force is another one, again, that we experience in everyday life. Every time you have a magnet, Again, if you have a fridge magnet and you feel the pull as you hold that magnet up to a piece of metal to the front of the fridge where it sticks, that's the electromagnetic force. The other two forces, the weak and the strong force, they're really significant only over very short distances. And they're very important, but really at atomic scales inside atoms. Of those four, gravity is by far the weakest. And it doesn't always feel like that to us, again, because we're sensitive to it every day. Um, but gravity is by far the weakest. And up the right-hand slide side there, there's the relative strength of those forces. And to give you an idea of what those numbers mean, if you imagine the force of gravity has a strength of one, and you kind of know what that feels like, because if you jump up, come back down, you feel that's gravity. So say that's that pull that you feel has a strength of one. The next strongest force, the weak force, is 10 to the power 25 times stronger than gravity. What does that mean? Well, if it was 10 times stronger, you'd have a, that would be 10, just 10, you'd know what that meant. If it was 100 times stronger, that would be 10 to the power 2. 1,000 would be 10 to the 3. 10,000, 10 to the 4, so 10 to the 25, you can imagine, is enormously stronger, hugely stronger. So gravity is very weak, but it's very important. And as it says there, it's the force responsible for our very existence. And why is that? Well, in the electromagnetic force, that magnet, remember, magnets have a plus and a minus. There's a, there's a plus and a minus charge. And so on large scales, 
the effects of plus and minus charge tend on the whole to cancel out and things are kind of neutral. Gravity only has one sign, it's always attractive. And so all objects are attracted to one another under gravity and on large scales that effect just adds up. So on the scale of the universe, it's gravity that actually dominates. It's responsible both for the birth of stars and the death of stars and the fact that we exist. The fact we have stars out there at all, well, there are clouds of dust and gas and all the individual um, parts, the, the matter, the, the molecules that make up those start to be attracted to one another. They pull together until eventually um, at the centre of those dense clouds, um, they fuse together and, and the stars start to shine. So gravity on a universal scale is very important. And Newton described the force of gravity and how objects were attracted to one another in his law of gravitation. And it's quite simple. He doesn't explain what gravity is, but he describes how it works, how things behave under gravity. So if you have two objects, those two objects feel a pull, an attraction to one another, and the size of that pool depends on the size, the mass, rather, of each of the objects and how far apart they are. And that has an interesting consequence that's a bit disturbing when you think about it because it de that pool depends on the separation of those two objects. So if one of those objects is us here on Earth and the other object is a star far away in the universe, there's a gravitational pull that depends how far apart we are. And if that star moves, in other words, the distance between the star and the Earth changes, the gravitational pull changes, we would feel a different pull here. And in Newton's theory, we would know then instantaneously that that star had moved because we'd feel a different pull, a different, a different uh, gravitational pull here on Earth. And that's an uncomfortable thought that we could know instantly about what was something about something that was happening some distance away. That's what's called instantaneous action at a distance. And it bothered even Newton. I think if you go back, you can find some, some of his writings where he realized this was an uncomfortable part of his theory of gravity. And it really took Einstein to come along with his special theory of relativity. And what special relativity says is that no information can be transmitted faster than the speed of light. No information. And that includes gravitational information. We can't know instantly about a, a change in gravitational pull that, that's caused by some object far away. So actually, special relativity tells us there must be traveling gravitational signals traveling across the universe. But it took general relativity, um, a more complete theory from Einstein, to actually um, uh, explain in more detail what those traveling gravitational signals were. So what did general relativity, um, again, uh, we could do go through all the maths, but it, it possibly wouldn't be very enlightening. So it's easier to think in terms of the, the picture of what general relativity tells us, the physical picture. And what it tells us is that we can think about gravity in a different way, in a geometrical way. So there we have, again, a picture on the right there. And if you imagine this is our universe, and, and imagine, first of all, our universe is empty. There's a kind of flat, empty universe. There's nothing in it. Then we come along and we add uh, a star, say, to our universe. And you can see what it's done is it's curved the fabric of the universe. There's a curve. And so you can imagine if we came along and we added a second object to our universe, plonked it on our sheet, it would try and roll down that sheet towards the first object. It would be as if they were attracted together. And that curvature caused by the presence of mass, we can think of as gravity. General relativity tells us that gravity we can think of as a curvature in space caused by the presence of mass. You can imagine now if that star moves, if it, if it wobbles, if it does something really violent like explodes, that curvature will change. And in fact, if it, this is a, a rubber universe here, ripples will be set up on the surface if that mass suddenly changes its position. Those ripples, those ripple, ripples in the curvature of space 
are the, the gravitational signals. Remember that curvature is telling us about gravity. They'll travel out across the universe. And those are the gravitational waves that we're interested in detecting. Now, what sorts of things in the universe could cause gravitational waves like that? Well, we said gravity was responsible for the birth of stars. It's also responsible for the death of stars. And so if we take a star like our sun, um, in the middle, again, we have hydrogen fusing into helium, giving out energy. And that's causing pressure uh, with, the, with, the, with the atoms and molecules in there. At the same time, gravity is trying to cause that star to collapse. And there's a balance as those two things balance one another. But eventually, of course, we'll run out of fuel and gravity again in the end wins. In a supernova, this, the center of the star collapses, blows off the outside, um, and we're left again, perhaps with that collapsed core in the middle there, <coughs> and pushing together the electrons and protons and the very atoms to make neutrons, to make a neutron star. Now, when that happens, there's a huge amount of mass, that matter in the star, that suddenly moves. And that, again, is something we believe could produce gravitational waves. And again, if the star's massive enough, it doesn't stop at being a neutron star, gravity takes it further, and uh, that whole thing collapses into what we call a black hole, where a black hole, of course, is called black because it's a region of space in which Gravity is so strong that not even light can escape the gravitational pull. Those neutron stars, again, we believe, again, uh, that are formed in such things, can spin. There's, they can be spinning in the form of what we call pulsars. Those neutron stars, again, have residual magnetic fields. They catch um, charged particles along the, the fields. If you accelerate a charged particle as it moves along, it will radiate, and radio waves can be produced. And so as the stars spinning round with, with uh, cones of radio waves coming out of either end, they sweep round as the star spins. And again, if they sweep past us on the Earth like a beacon, we can detect those. And again, in the centre of this uh, beautiful nebula here called the Crab Nebula, Again, we believe there's such a thing, a spinning neutron star, what we call a pulsar. And again, I couldn't resist, of course, uh, uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell is very famous, again, for being uh, associated with the discovery of the, the first pulsars. And again, she also graduated from Glasgow at one point, so again, <laughs> put her on the slide there. Um, those spinning neutron stars, if they're not perfectly spherical, if they have a lump on the surface, as, it's, as they're spinning round. Imagine them spinning, making a dent in space, sending out ripples across space. Again, those could be sources of gravitational waves. Say we have two neutron stars that get caught in one another's gravity, and so they start to spiral round in what we call a binary system, a pair of stars. As they do that, they're causing dents in space, changing uh, uh, the curvature of space, losing energy, and, and losing that some of it in the form of gravitational waves spreading out across the universe, getting faster and faster as they get closer together until eventually they collide and give out a burst of gravitational radiation. We talked about neutron stars, but of course that could also be perhaps a pair of black holes. And <clears throat> perhaps... Uh, until recently, one of the most famous examples of this is what's called the binary pulsar, um, a system in which one of the, one of the stars there was a, was a pulsar. Again, and those chaps here are two scientists, Russell Hulse and uh, Joe Taylor, and they're looking very happy because they, of course, got the Nobel Prize for observations of this binary star system. Again, from looking at the radio emission, they were able to measure how the orbit of those stars was changing, and were able to show that the stars were getting closer and closer together exactly in the way that general relativity would predict if they were giving out energy in the form of, of gravitational waves. And again, the plot here is, is rather amazing. You can see there's time here, and up the side here is telling us, um, effectively it's telling us the decrease in the time for those stars to reach closest approach. And so you can see it fits the prediction beautifully. 
So that was evidence that, that the prediction of gravitational waves existing was real. Now, there are a, that's some sources. There are actually a whole set of sources out in the universe of things that could be producing gravitational waves. And we need different kinds of detectors to target those different sources. In the same way with astronomy, we don't just have optical telescopes. We have X-ray, UV, gamma ray, um, uh, uh, looking at the cosmic microwave background, whole different telescopes targeting different sources. The same is true for gravitational waves. So mostly, I'll talk about the kinds of sources um, we've talked about today. And one of those is indeed pairs of black holes orbiting round, again, caught in one another's gravity. What we would expect if we're a long way away from, from those black holes, and it's just as well we are, what they're doing to the curvature of space. They're causing it to vibrate. And as they get closer and closer together, it vibrates faster and faster until they get so close that the, the, the horizons of the black holes merge and they actually coalesce into a single black hole, which then wobbles a little bit afterwards. And that, indeed, is just the kind of source that we detected earlier this year. With the two gravitational wave detectors of the, of the LIGO project, the LIGO and Virgo collaborations, two big collaborations that I'll talk about, with those detectors found just such a signal. It fits beautifully our models for a black hole system merging. And again, this is quite a, quite a remarkable thing for, for many reasons. Again, encoded in that signal are the properties of the two black holes. We can tell the masses of the black holes. We can tell information about the spins of the black holes. Again, about the mass of the final black hole that merged. And this, this event was actually detected in September last year, which turned out to be the, it's the 100th anniversary of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it was announced, again, because it took some time, of course, to be 100% sure that this, this was a real signal and something we had really detected, announced this year, which is the 100th anniversary of the prediction that gravitational waves should exist. So a fabulous, fabulous thing. It actually involved many firsts, not just the first direct detection of gravitational waves, but actually the first time people had, had, had experimental evidence for two black holes, direct evidence for the two black holes actually spiraling in to merge. Because there are various uh, predictions out there. Some of these predictions about how black holes uh, behave in the universe were such that we might never have seen two black holes merging in the, in the age of the universe. And so, so this was a, a, a terrific discovery. We can tell from that signal, again encoded in that signal, is the distance out to the coalescence. We can tell how long ago it happened. Actually, the distance was 1.3 billion light years, where, of course, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. So, so they've been traveling to us for a phenomenally long time, just in time for us to detect them. Those, those objects are things, and this event were things, that actually we think may not produce any, no optical light, no electromagnetic signals. And we might not be able to detect in any other way than from the gravitational signals. It's an entirely different way of doing astronomy. We can tell, again, from that chirp, that evolving signal, that the, the final black hole uh, had a mass that was about 62 times the mass of the sun, about 20 million Earth masses. We can tell the size of the black hole, what we call the event horizon. It was about 366 kilometers across, which is about the size of Iceland. That the black hole was spinning about 100 times a second, and that at the edges, of that, that uh, diameter, the, the edge of the diameter, a point on that was spinning at almost half the speed of light. And all of that information is encoded in that gravitational signal. So again, just a quick recap. What are gravitational waves? Well, they, they are basically a strain in space, a tiny strain in space. And you can think of them as being 
as being ripples caused by an event spreading out through space as ripples spread across a pond. And we can, and we have now for the first time, used them to study objects that don't emit light or electromagnetic signals that can only be actually sensed this way. So how, how did we do that? Well, if we think about the effect of gravitational waves, what physical effect do they have? Well, we said they stretch and compress space. They cause space to distort. So if we look at a patch of space on the board here, we pick this as our patch of space, and we draw a circle, you can see that gravitational waves coming from far out in the universe that have been traveling across the universe to us, landing here on Earth, going through the board, actually would cause this, this circle to turn into an ellipse in one direction, back to a circle, an ellipse in the other direction, and back again. So the, physically, if we tried to measure the distance between two points on the board, it would change. But it wouldn't change very much. These are extremely challenging experiments to do. For two points on the board like that, that were about a meter apart, a typical passing gravitational wave would only change their separation by about 10 to the minus 22 of a meter. So to give some perspective on, on again, what, what does that number mean, the width of a human hair can vary, but it's about 50 microns, much smaller than a millimeter. That's 50 times 10 to the minus 6 meters is the, the width of a human hair. The size of a typical atom is about 10 to the minus 10 meters. So 10 to the minus 22 meters is, is, is tiny compared to these distances. It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal challenge experimentally to, to measure this effect. So you need a very good um, way to measure that, a very good ruler. And for that, effectively what we do is we use the wavelength of light as our measuring instrument. And we use something called a Michelson interferometer. We take light from a laser, we shine that onto what's effectively a half-silvered plate, a beam splitter. It splits that light beam in two, sends it out to hit mirrors, which reflect the light back to the beam splitter, where it adds up again, and then we sit and look at the beam splitter to see what's going on. Now, how does that help us? Well, if you think about what gravitational waves are doing to space, if we take our mirrors here and here, and we imagine that's one mirror there and one mirror there. As one mirror goes out, the other mirror goes in, and the distance that light travels out each of these arms changes as a gravitational wave goes past. What does that mean? Well, you know that we can think of light as a wave. We have light waves traveling out each of these arms. If the, the arms were the same distance so that light when the wave went up this arm and the wave went this, this arm and was reflected back, if it arrives back here so that the two waves, you can think of even uh, uh, two waves arriving back if they both add up together when they come back, they add up to make a larger wave and we would see a bright spot in, in light if we actually looked at this point. If, on the other hand, something has passed by change the distance that light travels in each arm, so one light wave travels further than the other, they can arrive back at the beam splitter with one wave in a peak, the other one in a trough, and cancel out. And we would see a dark spot. So by looking actually at how, the, how bright the spot is at that beam splitter, we can tell if the mirrors are moving because the intensity, the brightness of the light changes. And that is what we do in sensing gravitational waves, and so it means that we're easily sensitive to things of the order of the wavelength of light. And that's relatively easy to do. These experiments are more challenging, so this is kind of a simplified version um, where we use a lot of technology, a lot of uh, optical tricks to be even more sensitive than that. But this is, this is the principle, and it's a pretty good start. And the, the, there are a lot of things, of course, that can try and move those mirrors more than a gravitational wave will. Now, I won't talk about all of these, but if we look again towards the bottom of the slide there, some obvious ones are seismic noise. If we just took our detectors and put the mirrors on the surface of the Earth, the Earth shakes, and it would shake those mirrors much more than a gravitational wave would. That's actually relatively easy to get around. What we do is we take those mirrors and we hang them as pendulums. 
And um, for if, if the top of our pendulum is connected to the earth, as long as the earth is shaking, not at the resonant frequency of the pendulum, and you know if you just take a pendulum and move your hand, you can make the pendulum swing, but you'll discover if you move your hand quite quickly, you can try this, the pendulum won't move very much at all, and you've basically built a mechanical filter to filter out seismic noise. Gravity gradient noise, that's another problem. Well, we talked about Newton earlier and Newton's law of gravity. And remember, it just said if you've got two objects and their distance changes, there's a gravity change in gravitational pull. So if we've taken our mirror, happily suspended it so it's hanging there free, that's one mass. If a person comes and walks past some distance away, that person is another mass whose distance to the first mass is changing, and that will exert a pull on the mirror. And that is something we can't shield against. There's no way to shield against gravity. So that's quite a fundamental noise source in, in our instruments, but it, it's a low-frequency noise source. People move slowly. Cars move slowly. <clears throat> People don't run 100 times a second back and forward past our mirrors. So... At low frequencies, that's a problem. And it's one of the reasons why some of those exciting sources I talked about, remember we had that whole <coughs> excuse me, spectrum of, of, of uh, uh, sources and different frequencies of waves that we wanted to detect, some of those we cannot do on Earth because of gravity gradient noise. We have to put detectors in space. Last uh, but not least on the slide here is thermal noise. Um, every atom in our mirror is just at room temperature, so it's vibrating with thermal energy. And again, <clears throat> that is one again, that we have to design around, but it's an important noise source. All of these noise sources, actually, um, we, can, we can reduce their effects if we make our detectors large. And so the Michelson type interferometer I showed you those aren't things that are on a bench top. These are large installations. And so the two observatories that made the, the detection earlier this year um, are large. They actually have four kilometer long arms in the Michelsons. And this is where they're located. You can see one is in Hanford in uh, Washington State in the US, and the other one is in Livingston uh, near Louisiana. In Louisiana, no, it's about an hour from New Orleans in the US. Um, and they're operated by uh, Caltech and MIT, and they manage them, um, but they're used by a whole collaboration of scientists, again, that I'll talk about. And actually, here in the UK, we're partners in this project because some of the technology, actually critical technology to suspend the mirrors, was supplied by the UK um, as part of this project. And it is a big collaboration. There are over a 1,000 scientists who... who um, work on these observatories and use the data, studying the data. They come from all around the globe, again, um, uh, and actually many, many different countries all working together. And that working together is very important. One of the reasons for that, one of the key reasons, is trying to understand where in the universe these signals are coming from when they, they, they arrive with us. And the first key way we do that is by timing when the signals arrive at the different detectors. And we, it's, it's triangulation. We basically can tell if, if a signal arrived, uh, say, first here and then here, then it must have been closer to this detector. And the more detectors we have, the better we can tell where in the sky a signal came from. We're detecting the gravitational signals and seeing things you can't see any other way, black holes. But there are other exciting sources that should produce optical, electromagnetic signals. And we want to work with our colleagues elsewhere in, in the astronomy field, because by combining our information, we can do more science. And in fact, we closely work with them. When we um, detect something that's coincident, we take that information, we get, try and get information about where in the universe it may have come from, 
We check that everything was operating properly, so quite a lot of this is automated, but a human being comes in and checks everything looks okay. Then we send that information out to our colleagues who have telescopes that they can swing round and point and try and see was there a counterpart to the gravitational signal. Now, it just so happens this kind of source, two black holes, might not have produced any signal, and in fact, I think there's, there's no strong evidence there was any other signal associated with that. Not surprising. But in future, this is going to be a very important thing to do. So where are we going in future? We think as we go on into the next observing run that we'll be in a, in a region where we could potentially see several events. So more of these pairs of black hole systems is clearly a target. But we'll also be searching for signals from some of those other sources I talked about, supernovae, binary black holes colliding, things perhaps we don't even know exist yet. Because there's a rich set of science questions that we want to try and answer with gravitational waves. And some of those we're starting to tackle already. Gravity, well, is general relativity the correct theory of gravity? There are other theories of, of, of gravity, and gravity is, again, probably the least understood of, of all the four forces. General relativity, is it, does it still work under super strong gravity when we have massive, supermassive black holes colliding? We're in, in regions of, of hugely strong gravity conditions. Does general relativity still hold there when we're getting very close to, 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 to huge distortions in space? If we, we look at, if, if we can detect these strange neutron stars colliding, we have theories about what the material inside should look like, but it's so dense and under conditions that we just can't replicate here on Earth because gravity is so strong, measuring the gravitational signals actually should give us information potentially about what neutron stars are actually made of. Cosmology. We believe our universe is expanding. It's not only expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. And nobody understands why. And again, it's a real mystery today in, in, in physics. What's going on? What's causing the, the accelerating expansion of the universe? Now, we have measurements of that using electromagnetic signals. Gravity, gravitational signals, is a completely different way to study these sorts of things. And again, as, a, as I'll say, we need to know that. Astronomy and astrophysics, where and how do these black holes actually form? How are they related to galaxy formation? I told you what we believe happens when a star collapses and, and, a, and a supernova again uh, happens. We have models, but most of the information that we get, not all, but most, comes from the outside of such an event. The electromagnetic signals, the light, come from the outside, and we have to try and deduce what's happening inside. Gravity cannot be masked. The gravitational signals are coming from the core collapse. So again, we hope to get information that we can't really get any other way. There's a whole list. I won't go through them all. But we're just at the start now of, of again, some, some fascinating dis sort of discoveries. Um, but remember, there's that whole spectrum of other potential sources, exciting sources of gravitational waves we want to study. Some of those we can't study with detectors here on the Earth. And so there are plans, in fact, to put a detector in space. The Andromeda galaxy, I think, in our galaxy, at some point in the future, again, may possibly collide. We know there are galaxy collisions out there. It's a beautiful picture. This is the mice Nebula, which is two galaxies that we believe are in the process of colliding. And why do we believe that? Well, there are a lot of uh, folks out there who do galaxy collision simulations. And this is one such simulation. There's two galaxies in the process of colliding. And if we stop and compare that simulation to the Mice Nebula, you'll see it looks very similar. If we let it keep going, you'll see the galaxies don't just pass through one another. Their centers actually start to merge as the galaxies collide. Now, why do we think that's true? Well, if we run the simulation again and we strip the stars off from that simulation, in the center of those galaxies, as there is at the center of our own galaxy, we believe there's a supermassive black hole. And what's happening there is those two supermassive black holes have got caught and are spiraling around to eventually, we think, 
collide. Now, that's a source that we could not, we think, detect here on Earth. For that, which would be a fabulous thing to see, we would need to put a detector in space. And so, in fact, the European Space Agency has selected studies of the gravitational universe as a topic for one of its future large uh, mission concepts. I said at the beginning, gravity was... Um, Again, it's a, a, a very interesting force, personally for me, but in general for us all, to, to try and understand, a medium to understand the universe through. Because, again, we believe of, of all the stuff there is in the universe, the ordinary atoms and molecules and stuff like you and I, how much of that we understand? Well, about 4 to 5% of the universe is made of ordinary matter. We know there's other stuff out there, stuff we call dark matter, because we can see something out there has extra gravitational effects. We do not know what dark matter is. We said the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion. We say that's because of something called dark energy closing, <laughs> causing the universe to accelerate. It's a name we give. We don't know what, what's happening, what's happening there. To help us understand, we need new physics, and new physics particularly for gravity. And we know that every time we've turned on a telescope in the electromagnetic spectrum, we've seen completely different things. The universe looks completely different with different telescopes. For the first time now, we're looking at it for the first time through its gravitational signals. And we've already made discoveries. We couldn't have made any other way with that, those binary black hole systems. So the question is now, over the next few years, what more discoveries will gravitational waves reveal? And I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Absolutely wonderful. Just a couple of daft questions and then I'll give it to you guys. But it struck me that the whole story that we've had about gravitational waves is the, the idea is 100 years old and it's taken us 100 years really to develop a technology that is only involved in getting rid of background noise. And that's really the t how we, we have done it. Right. We've now just got to the stage where we can detect gravitational waves. Is it then really the next stage, the most important stage, is building more detectors rather than building more sensitive detectors? It's both, actually. Again, because they do different things. The network of detectors, if we are, and we want them actually to be of comparable sensitivity so we can combine the data usefully, that's giving us the positional information. Um, uh, and so that's one kind of information. But to be sensitive to more events in the universe, we need more sensitive individual detectors. So, so it's, 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 a, it's a mix of both. But it's, I mean, it's both. an astonishing technology that has been developed that you can measure something that's like a fraction of a proton yes. in, in, in size. I can't think how you could make it more sensitive. There are things, again, that we're looking at. So... Uh, the mirrors in these instruments, I said thermal noise, the fact that every molecule is at room temperature and shaking, there's thermal energy causing vibrations. Mm. One way to reduce that would be to cool the mirrors, to cool them down to cryogenic temperatures. So there's a whole set of research trying to understand what material could we use and cool down very quietly to make these mirrors cold and reduce that noise source. So there's a whole set of different technologies looking at those what things. What about the arm length? You've got four kilometre kind of maximum. I mean, could, is it practical to go beyond that or do you get sort of... Other problems around you could go a bit bigger, and again, yeah. people are starting to think about that. 10 kilometers, um, maybe you could go to 40, but mm. there are different challenges actually that start to crop up as you make the arms longer. The earth starts to curve, and so you have to fight the fact that you've hung your mirrors as pendulums. And you know, if you hang a pendulum, it will point towards the center of the earth, yes. So if the Earth starts to curve and you put those two oh, pendulums gosh. far apart It'll and you try and shine light between them, you then have to correct for that. So there are, there, there are different sorts of limitations that can come in there. But again, four kilometres is not the maximum. I think we could think to make them longer. And that is, again, one of the obvious ways to make the detectors more sensitive.
He's a different planet, I think. <laughs> right, great. Well, thank you. And I'm going to throw this one out to... to well, your hand was up there like a shot. <laughs> thank you for most excellent lecture, Professor. There's one thing that's conspicuous by its absence, and that's the mention of those little characters called gravitons. To what sure. extent are they relevant? So, so it's a very good question. Again, for the other forces, the other three fundamental forces, they all have their own particles associated with them. And people believe that associated with the gravitational force, there should be the graviton, the, the equivalent particle for the gravitational field. And so... It's a bit like in electromagnetic waves. You have photons and electromagnetic waves. You have gravitons and gravitational waves. But the energy, when you do the calculation of, of, of individual particles, <coughs> gravitons, would be very difficult to see how to detect. So by detecting gravitational waves, we're detecting effectively what you could think of as many, many gravitons. But we're not going to show the particle effects this way. Again, it, so it's a, people believe from the symmetry of the universe that there should be gravitons, these particles associated with gravitational waves, but we're not going to be able to determine that particle nature here. But it's, again, one of the reasons why we need, we need more good young people studying physics to unify those four forces and, and come up with this complete theory of, of quantum gravity. We're not in that regime. We're working really in the wave regime. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering if I was reading your charts wrong when you did the detector on the, on the black holes colliding. Was all of that over within a second? Did I read that correct? It was. Two it massive black holes and it's all over like that? The bit that we were sensitive to, I think, was uh, 0.2 seconds. So we caught the very fine... I mean, it, looks, it was slowed down you know, in the model that I showed, but we caught the final part, just that blip at the end there as the two black holes, the last few cycles, they spiralled in to merge. So, and that's because that happened in the sensitive part of our detector range. Um, of course, the, the, the modelled signal I showed you, they'd been spiralling in for a, for a long time. That just, we weren't sensitive to that part. But again, it's, it's to test general relativity, it would be interesting to see more of the signal. Again, we get different information from, from different parts of the signal, but yep, it was... It was over like 1.3 billion light years away, and then it passed by us like so that. Far, In some of the write-ups on the ah, uh, gravitational waves, much was made of auditory signals yes. that were used in the detection. Could you explain how that kind of information interacts with the kind of systems you were talking about? Yes. Yes, in fact, the... the, the Signals here, we don't get a picture. You'll show, I showed you this trace, this wiggle. So it's not like a, an optical telescope or some of the other telescopes where you get an image. What we get is the shaking of the mirrors in the instrument. And that is something, again, uh, in the days before, you know, on MP3 players and CDs, when people had record players, you had your record player pick up and the needle vibrated and you, you plugged that into your speaker. And, and you could hear the, the vibrations. And so if we take the vibrations of our mirrors, again, if we take that signal that we detect, you can play it through a speaker. Now, these particular signals, if you try and do that raw, you don't hear so much. So we, we can shift them slightly and actually slow it down a little bit because it was over so quickly. And that, I think, is, is what, what, what people have, have played. And you hear this whoop. And, and it's a very characteristic noise. Again, the signal gets faster, so it rises in it mm -hmm. rises in pitch, it rises in frequency, and it rises in amplitude. And so we can It's it's in some ways it's like listening to the universe. We don't get a picture. We sense its vibrations, and we can turn those vibrations into sound. Uh, regarding the actual signal itself, uh, how do you get so much information out of it? Uh, my understanding is there's like an archive of different signals for different events you should observe. How do you know this one is two black holes of that specific mass and that distance and so forth? Sure. So the, the, there is a template bank. We have all these models for what that signal should look like for 
different masses of black holes, different combinations, different spins. And so there's a whole, a whole set of these templates that people can compare the data with effectively. That, that's what happens. People ser use these templates to match against the, the potential signals in the data. And so if the black holes have different masses, different spins, um, the exact um, evolution of that whoop again, is, is slightly different. The final amplitude might be different, the, ring, the, the sort of ring down as the black holes merged. So the exact shape of that signal would be different for different, uh, pair, different masses, different pairs. So there is a template bank and people computationally run that against the, the, the data to look and see. That's, that's one, one um, good way of getting out um, the, the properties of the individual holes. To make a detection, again, people uh, run those kind of searches, they, and that works for those pairs of star systems or black hole systems. But of course, something like a supernova, we don't have a good model for what a signal might look like. We, just, we don't quite know, except we should look the same in both instruments. So they are, there are different um, algorithms that people use, different computational techniques that fundamentally look for excess sort of power in the two in, in, in the instruments. And so if there's a blip in one, is there a blip in the other at the, at the right time delay for it potentially to be a signal? Then just looking at that, one would go back, look at what the shape of the signal looked like and start to you know, look and see if that's a plausible candidate for some kind of event, whether it's two, two black holes, then look on a template. Does it not look like that? Does it look like something else? And that's, again, where some of the excitement, I think, will come mm -hmm. in, where we see signals and we don't actually know where they've, they've come from. You know, to, 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 who, you know, who knows what's produced them? So, so it's partly template-based and it's partly looking for coincident events. And again, the more instruments we have, the more confidence we can have in terms of detecting things, not just if we have two, if we have a third detector, again, that, that also increases your confidence that you've made, you've made a real detection. You, you say that gravity uh, travels at the speed of light. So if the universe is expanding, is there a sort of gravitational redshift? So there's the, the, all those things have to be built into the, built into the studies. Again, I went to a talk, I think a public talk by Jan Eleven in the US, where she said, again, it's a worry that, that the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion because everything's rushing away from us so fast. One day, we won't be able to do astronomy, and that's why it's really important we do astronomy now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question? Thank you very much for your lecture. It was really interesting. I was just wondering um, that if these if the gravity effects travel at the speed of light, how could we detect, it? I mean, if there even is one, a, a graviton, because wouldn't it be massless? Um, so, it's a good question, and if we, if we understood what gravitons really were, again, and, and again, it's, a, it's one in which, again, I'm not a theorist in that area, so I probably can't give you a very good answer on that one. I think it's very difficult. We can tell that the energies are such that it would be very difficult to get them, I think, to interact with things. So it's, I, I, I haven't, I think, seen good sort of a, anyone proposing to how we, could, how we could really make individual detections. But it really is at the edges of what people think they understand theoretically. Again, one of the really interesting things, I think, is how little we understand about some of these things, some of the things I've talked about today. Gravitational waves we're getting to grips with, and we're, we're, we're measuring those. Um, quantum gravity, there's, there's kind of theories out there, but predictions about how we might make observations, there's only a small number of, of suggestions about experiments that we can do. Um, and I, again, if we had not seen gravitational waves, oddly enough, that could have been experimental evidence for some of the more exotic uh, theoretical predictions that say, because um, we don't understand why gravity is so weak compared to the other forces. And so there are predictions about gravitons disappearing off into extra dimensions um, that the other exchange particles don't disappear into. And 
So, for instance, we know from the binary pulsar gravitational waves are produced. If they were being produced but not arriving here, where were they going? So there are... So, so if we, oddly enough, if we hadn't seen gravitational waves, that might have been exciting for the graviton. Um, but I think that's a whole really puzzling area of, of theoretical physics that needs, uh, needs good people to work on. Last couple of questions. Would it ever be possible to use gravitational waves to map distribution of mass in any area to trace, back, trace it back to small temperature differences? Um, just after the Big Bang? There are indeed, um, you know, fluctuations in density in the early universe, and that's, I think, you, you, you've probably heard of the BICEP experiment, BICEP2, <coughs> where people were trying to measure the effects of gravitational waves in the early universe. So what they were actually measuring was the, the polarisation of the cosmic microwave background. So they were actually still measuring electromagnetic things, but they were looking for a signature in those measurements caused by gravitational waves in the early universe. With the sorts of detectors that we have, I mean, those gravitational waves could still be, some of them uh, could still be rattling around, um, we're not sensitive enough yet to detect those kinds of, of gravitational waves directly. It's a grand goal in the future, one of the reasons for wanting to make our detectors more sensitive is to try with our detectors to measure further back in time to try and detect gravitational waves from the early universe. The BICEP results are a very different technique and they're looking for a snapshot in time. It's like trying to see, what we're doing is kind of, our gravitational waves are like, um, you know, meeting your relatives at a party. Those are signals, you know, from things that have happened more, more recently, still quite a long time ago. Um, the bicep people are it's like finding a picture of your ancient ancestors who you can't go meet personally, but there's a snapshot of, of what the early universe looked like. And that's another probing back to the early universe in terms of cosmology, in terms of understanding the universe is a fantastic thing to do. I know that that's not... Um, our direct field, but those folks are pushing on their experiments too, and I think they're also going to be fantastically interesting to understand the early universe. Thank you. One last question. Hello. Uh, thanks for a brilliant lecture. Um, delving deep into the realms of theoretical stuff, um, you know, like negative matter, um, how theoretically it would create like an anti-gravity kind of upward well, if you want, like above it. So it would be logical to assume that they would produce gravitational waves, like if to like the self-acceleration and stuff. Um, like, what would those gravitational waves actually look like, or is that just? So I think I think you can have antimatter, but I think all the evidence so far is it has the same sort of gravitational effects as real matter. Its other properties are different. Um, the, so we don't have, I think anywhere that we can have anti-gravity just now. Except, of course, we don't understand what dark energy is. We keep saying there's this thing called dark energy that's causing things to rush apart. But, you know, that's, we simply don't know what that is. But I think we, we, we don't have um, something we could call anti-gravity. I think we just, that's, that's something we haven't, we haven't, we don't have. We haven't, we haven't got that yet. Although what dark energy is, again, that's another exciting area for, for somebody to come up with an answer with. We, people talk about the inflaton, this field in the early universe, but really, again, there, it's, it's something where people work on different parts of this problem, but we don't have a good picture for what's going on. John, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. It's wonderful. Thank you for listening. And join us again in two weeks' time to hear from neuroscientist and developmental psychologist Professor Mark Lewis as he explains his arguments against categorising addiction as a disease.